evening, everyone. Welcome to Unapologetic and Free. I'm Charnay, and we're going to be discussing Pastor Lakia Peters. Lakia L. Peters is a wife, a mother, and a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She is a war veteran who served in the U.S. Army Reserve. She graduated from the Sonship School of the Firstborn in 2009 and obtained a bachelor's degree in applied psychology in 2020. She is an author of four books and owns and operates a business alongside her husband. She is a domestic violence survivor and has a passion for sharing her life experiences and relating them to the word of God to encourage and develop growth in Christ. Welcome, Lakia. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. I'm excited to be here and to share my story with you all today. Very good. So let's go ahead and start. Tell us about your story. All right. So my story I starts, I want to say, I'm going to pick up at mm, 2013. So in 2013, I was divorced <laughs> from my first husband um, and I was living the single life. So single mom, trying to raise my two children, um, living on my own. Uh, I had decided that I was going to, I had been going to school on and off, but I had decided that I wanted to go back to school. So I had started taking some college courses and I was just, you know, kind of purposing to just live this life. Now, prior to that, I do have to say that I was faithful in a church. I was a member of a church in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, that I had been a member of for quite some time. I mean, several years I had been a member of that church. Um, and so I was going to church faithfully. And then fast forward to 2014. Um, it's the summer of 2014. I just finished taking my summer courses. Um, my children had went to go to the summer for the summer. So they went to live with their fathers. My son went to go live with his dad. And then my daughter went to go live with her um, dad. And they were in two different states. And so now I'm single, single, no kids, just me, single, in my own place, just finished school. And so I find myself in a Walmart. And so I go into this Walmart. I was actually getting ready to go out of town. But anyway, I'll go into this Walmart and I run into an ex-boyfriend that I hadn't seen in at least over 20 years. Now, the interesting thing about this ex-boyfriend is that he's what I consider one of my first loves, like high school sweetheart, like the, the boyfriend that you ditch school with and you get in trouble with because you're not where you're supposed to be, like just swear right. we were in love, swear we were going to get married and didn't know anything about love at that time, right? So it, it had been that long since I had seen him. The reason that we broke up back then was because I, I think I either moved or he was doing some things. And, you know, again, it was just not that serious to me. So we just kind of broke up and we went our separate ways. So, again, I run into him in Walmart, standing in line. And I'm just going to be honest. I was blown away by how good he looked. He did okay. not look anything okay. like I had remembered. I mean, he was kind of buffed. So it looked like he had been working out. And, you know, I stood behind him in line. I made my way to make sure he noticed me. And we talked, right? Now, we didn't exchange. So you, you, noticed, you noticed him first. Yes. So I noticed him first. And so I kind of made myself to where he would see me. Put it like that. Okay. <laughs> and so okay. we in line. Hey, how you doing? Long time no see. Okay, great. And so we leave the store. We don't exchange any phone numbers or anything. We just leave. But Lakia, that's me, 
I decided to go home, get on Facebook and try to find him. So I did the Facebook search and I found him. I found who I thought was him. I sent him a message saying, hey, how you doing? I don't even remember what the message was, but I did send him a message just, you know, saying, hey, we talked in Walmart, but we didn't exchange numbers. Hey, how you been? Just to start a conversation. So from there, he responded. We started a conversation. Next thing I know, he's coming over to visit. So now again, single, I'm by myself. Uh, the very first time we met, though, I had him meet me at my sister's house because I didn't want him to know where I live. So I don't know if you remember that or not, but we met. And I, at the time, I want to say my sister lived not too far from me. So I had him meet me there and we kind of just talked. And I want to say maybe we we didn't go to my, my apartment right away. We just kind of met. But then eventually he starts to come over. Well, what I found out was that he had been in jail. He had been in and out of jail. And he told me he was honest. He was upfront about his past and that he had been in and out of jail and that he was just recently released. But he talked a lot about how when he was in jail that he was saved, that he believed in Jesus, that he talked about how he used to fast and how he used to do Bible studies and, and all of these things. So that sparked my attention. I'm like, okay, so you believe. And so we would talk about, we talked about the Bible. We talked about the word, right? And being saved. And he said he was saved. So I'm thinking, okay, this is great. Right. And so we just started talking. Um, he told, he shared some information with me about why he was in jail. He was honest about domestic violence, that he had been in relationships where he had abused women. You know, he had some, he told me about he had drug problems, that he used to be addicted to this drug called crystal meth. So he was very open about his past. So anyway, so I start talking to him. Next thing I know, we're spending time together at my apartment alone. Next thing I know, now I also want to say this too, that prior to running into him, I had got divorced in 2013. So the last time I had had any kind of sexual intercourse or I had been with anyone was my ex-husband and that was 2013. So fast forward 2014, I hadn't been with anybody. I want to say he, maybe within the first week that he and I started talking, we ended up sleeping together. And that was something that was not, in my character. That was not something that I thought that I would have done because again, I have been celibate. <laughs> I have been abstaining from sex. I believed in waiting until marriage. All of these things that I believed and I preached prior to running into him. And if you would have told me that I would have done that, I would have said, no, I'm not going to do that. But again, I fell hard and I fell fast. And next thing I know, he was at my place every day. We were inseparable. He pretty much moved in after like the first two weeks. And, and that was it. From there, we lived together. So this caused the problem because now I'm still a member of this church. And this church that I'm a member of, I'm in fornication. I mean, it is what it is. And so, of course, I'm trying to go to church but and do the right thing. And, I'm, and I know what I'm doing is wrong. So I'm talking to the pastors. And they're obviously, they're letting me know, hey, this is not right. You need to end this relationship. But again, I chose not to end the relationship. I basically ended up leaving the church. So I stopped going to church so that I could be in this relationship. So for the first six months, everything was, I mean, as good as it could be, right? Like we're so still in fornication. Right. We're still living together in fornication. But so I start pressing him about getting married because, again, I still know what the right thing is to do. So I'm like, you know, we're going to live together and we're going to do this. Let's just get married. I mean, let's just make it legal. Right. 
So we go ahead, January, 2015, we go ahead and get married. The crazy thing about our marriage is that we didn't tell anybody that we were getting married. We hired a mobile, like, I don't even know what to call it, but like a mobile minister, right? A, a traveling somebody, minister. A traveling minister that we just looked up and they came, one guy and his wife, they came to our house. We literally got married in the living room. And, but it was legal. It was legit. We signed the papers. The wife was the witness. And so we got married in our living room on January 1st of 2015. Again, we didn't tell anybody. Even afterwards, we didn't tell anybody. What ended up happening is that we went over to his family's house for like a function and somebody noticed that I had on a ring. And from there, they started asking questions. And so we just went ahead and told his family first. And then eventually I told my family that I had gotten married. And everybody was shocked. Oh my God, you got married. Why didn't you tell us? Of course, I didn't want to tell anybody because I knew what I was doing was wrong. And then to, for me, it was my second marriage. So I was ashamed. I was embarrassed, right? Okay, so I'm thinking, all right, we're married now. Things are going to be great, right? We're not living in sin anymore. I'm, I'm working. I worked for the state. And so I had a really good job. I was still going to work. My husband at the time, he didn't work. He was looking for work. He had some challenges right there as far as trying to find stable work. Okay, so fast forward. Hmm, about six months in, after we're married now, mind you, I knew all about his past. So one day I come home and he says, um, basically he tells me that he had a relapse. We'll just call it that. And he ran into somebody who he used to get the drugs from and he got drugs from that person and he was open and honest and told me, hey, I, I relapsed. So me being this crazy, naive person, I said, oh, I want to try it. Like, where is it? Do you still have some? And so I asked to try the drug called crystal meth. Initially, he was like, no, I don't want you to do it. But I kept pressing. I wanted to try it. Miss, you know, prior to that, the, the most drugs I had ever done was maybe smoke some weed, you know, I drink here, there, but I had never done anything major, right? So again, for me, it was exciting. It was like, okay, I'm going to live on a wild side. I'm just going to try it. What's the worst that could happen? Well, I did go ahead and try it. And initially it was fun. I liked the way it felt and I wanted to keep doing it. I always say that because I chose to do it. Mm. I wanted to keep mm. doing it because again, it was fun at first. And so we would just do it on the weekends. I would go to work Monday through Friday, you know, but what ended up happening is we would start to carry over into Sunday. Like at first it would be, okay, we'll just do it Friday, Saturday, rest Sunday so I could go to work on Monday. Well, we started to do it more and it started to carry over. And then it got to the point where I wouldn't be able to go to work on Monday or I'm going to work and I'm not really 100%. Then it got to the point where, again, I'm leaving work to go do do some on the on my break to give me the energy to get through the day. And I don't know if, for those who don't know about crystal meth, it is an upper. So for me, it gave me this energy that I had never experienced before. It allowed me to stay up for hours and days at a time. And that was not something that was in my normal character to do. And so that was what initially drew me to wanting to continue to do it. And so that's, yeah. that's how it was for a while. Well, after a while, again, it started to take a toll on me. And I said, well, hey, I can't keep doing this and going to work. I talked to my husband and said, hey, I want to ease up on this. I want to kind of not do this anymore because I'm in jeopardy. I feel like I'm losing my job. Well, by this time, he's all the way 
addicted as well. And so he felt like he could not stop, that it wasn't something he wanted to stop doing. So then that put me in a position where even if I chose to try to not do it, now I would have to sit and watch him do it or be exposed to it, right? And again, it, with so addiction, the temptation, the temptation of... was still there where, yeah, I'm trying not to do it, but you're not making it easy for but me to stop. And you're, right. right. So what I ended up doing was resigning from my job that I had been on. Total, I had been on about five years. I had some breaks, but I decided to resign from my job. My logic was if I go ahead and resign, then I could leave in good standings versus keep coming to work high mm -hmm. and then take a chance on messing something up or getting fired and then having that on my record that I got fired. So I, mm -hmm. I resigned. I ended up, when I resigned, I cashed in my 401k. At that time, I probably cashed in, I want to say roughly anywhere from eight to $10,000 that I cashed in on my 401k. So in addition to that money, I was still trying to go to school. So trying to do drugs, trying to work and go to school. So I was getting money from, you know, educational loans to go to school because right. I was still trying to go to school. So we we purposed to try to live off that money. So I quit work. I was still trying to go to school. But one day things took a turn, like something happened along the way and things took a turn. And there was one night we were doing drugs and, and I had got a text from a strange number. Well, I'm high, y'all. And I don't know if you know about being high. It makes you paranoid. And specifically with the meth, it makes you very paranoid. And mind mm -hmm. you, I know his past. So I'm getting this text from this number and I don't know who it is. So I'm trying to sneak and respond to the message, but not let him know that somebody's texting me, right? And I'm trying to do it on the slide. So again, I'm being sneaky. He's asking me questions. I'm lying to him because I'm trying to hide what I was doing. Well, come to find out, he was the one that was sending me the messages. So he was setting me up. And the whole time I'm lying, he knows that I'm lying, right? Because he's the one that's sending me the messages. Whoa. So all of this while I'm high. So he exposes it. And he says, you know, you're, you're a liar, right? You lied about all of this stuff. And so it ends up turning into where he gets physically abusive. So that was the first time he got physically abusive. And so I let it go because I said, well, he caught me in a lie. Again, I'm high. So then I'm like, well, I lied. And it, he was just reacting and responding to the lie so that I told. Okay. So, so you're justifying I, his actions. So okay. I justified his actions that first time. And then he, you know, the, the, the thing, oh, I'll never do it again. I'm sorry. You just made me upset. Don't lie to me. Well, from there, it just went downhill after that because now I couldn't be trusted. In his mind, I couldn't be trusted. So he started to look on my Facebook page and he found out all these people that I had been searching and just started going through my emails. And it just got bad where it was like everything that I had done was exposed and he took everything like I was hiding all of this stuff. So anyway, we're still doing drugs. Now, relationship goes on different things would happen where he would ask me something and again, I would lie. And I'm not, and, and the thing is, I don't want to make excuses. I would lie. I was scared because I'm like, okay, if he did that the first time, I can't tell him the truth about what these things are, are happening, right? So I was lying. Another incident happened where we used to watch this show called <laughs> Big Brother. 
And I, I'm telling these things because I want you to understand like what kind of situation I was in. So we used to watch Big Brother. Well, we would record it. And so I was supposed to wait on him to watch it. It was like the season finale. And I was supposed to wait on him to watch the show, right? Well, I don't know where he was. And I didn't want to wait. Like, I'm still like that to this day. I don't want to wait. Like, come on, you're taking too long. So anyway, so I watched the show, right? So he comes home and he's asking me, did you watch it without me? Nothing clicked to me. Like, why are you asking me that? Again, still doing drugs. Half the time we were more high than we were down. So I'm on drugs. We on drugs, right? So, And I'm like, no, I didn't watch it. No, I didn't watch it. Come to find out he had a hidden camera that was inside of the house oh. that he had been recording me. So when he was asking me if I watched oh, it, he already he knew knows. that I had watched oh, it. Oh my gosh. So he had to expose that he had this the camera lie. that was on me, right? He exposed the lie, but at the same time, that's this is how I found out that he had been recording me. So from that moment, I ended up becoming a hostage in my own home. Meaning that camera, after that, again, I. It got physical again after that, but then it became where I could not, every time he left I and I had to stay, the camera was on. So it watched my every move. He would make me be in that room, no clothes on to again, I get, now looking back to ensure, hey, I didn't go That's anywhere. You. Right. This is when the mental abuse and the physical and why I say I was hostage in my own house. He took, I didn't have any, no longer had access to my emails, my cell phone, text messages, nothing. I couldn't even get on the internet. Changed all of the passwords, locked me out. I couldn't get online and I could not leave the house unless we left together. There was times where he wouldn't even leave. He would just go downstairs, but he would check to see like, so let's, because people say, oh, well, why didn't you try to leave? Well, I would try to leave and he would be right downstairs making me think that he had left, but he was really right in the parking lot. So Watching think, because of the camera. Watching because of the camera and to let me know, hey, the, the mind games, right? About you're not going to go anywhere. And so again, I was hostage in my own home. Again, the only place we went was together. During that time, my mom was going to dialysis. And so I would have to pick her up from dialysis. He would be with me. And again, I wasn't allowed to really have a, any major conversation with my mom. I kept the conversations light and simple. She had, she knew something was off, but she didn't know what. She didn't know what was really going on. So anyway, so again, I'm in this house. I'm hostage. Don't have any access. Wasn't able to communicate with people. People were trying to call me. He would take the calls or he would respond to the text messages. He would respond to the emails. Mind you, my children are still with their fathers at this time. Now, there was times throughout the process where they did come, but they only came for like a limited amount of time and then they would go back. So again, it wasn't a big deal. And so I lived that way for a few months. Um, eventually, I got to the point where it got became more abusive, more abusive. I would say, I want to stop and I don't want to do these drugs anymore. He would force me to do the drugs. And so people ask me this too. Well, did he put a gun to my head? He didn't put a gun to my head, but when it, it came down to, do I want to continue to get beat or do I want to do or the drug? Do I want to do the drug? That's what that's to me, that's the similar of a gun to my head. A gun to I your head. Beat, yeah. beat upside my head, just constantly beat, beat, beat. You're gonna, I chose to do the drugs to keep from getting beat. I didn't have access. There was times when I tried to run. 
So like we were driving, I tried to run and get out of the car. He would follow me, grab me, put me back in the car. Um, you know, so again, there was times when I tried to get away, but he would always find me, always bring me back, put me back in the house. And again, it was just the only place I was able to go was to take my mom to dialysis. And he used to say things like, I, if I said anything to my mom, I would worry her. So he manipulated me into not saying anything because I didn't want to upset my mom. I didn't want to worry my mom about what was really going on. He would, he manipulated me by saying, if I call the police, that he was going to go to jail for life because he was a three-time offender. So he was like, if you call the police, they're going to take me. They're going to look at me, look at you, and then I'm going to be in jail for life. So another manipulation because I'm like, oh, well, I don't want you to go to jail for life. I just want you to, you know, I wanted him to stop the abuse, but again, manipulated me into saying, but I don't want you to go to jail for life. So there would just be so many different things. You know, he would accuse me of things. And what I say too, it's like being on trial and you can't prove your innocence. You know how they say you're innocent until you're proven guilty, right? But in my case, I was guilty all the time because I could not prove innocence. Example would be, he would find stuff and he would say, oh, an app called Plenty of Fish, right? This is a real live example. And he's like, oh, this shows you've been on Plenty of Fish. Who are you talking to on Plenty of Fish? Well, what I know now that I didn't know then in order to prove it is Google keeps record of your history, right? So in school, I was doing assignments in classes where I literally had to go on Plenty of Fish and I had to create a profile. Prior to him, I was on Plenty of Fish. I did go on that site, but I wasn't on that site during the time that we had been together. But I couldn't prove when I had been on there. All he would say is, oh, this shows you've been on plenty of fish. And, you know, so again, just things like that would cause me to feel like, man, I'm innocent, but I can't prove it. So fast forward to enough is enough. I finally get the courage to leave. Something happened and he actually kicked me out of my own apartment. (laughs) We had got into it one day and I don't know what happened. And he was like, go, just leave. So I left, I took what I could, I left, I went to the office because I don't have a phone, I don't have anything, but I'm like, I gotta get out of here. So I go to the office, they have a computer in the office. I get on the computer, I log into my daughter's Facebook page, I had access to her Facebook page at this time, sent my sister, Sharnae, a message through her Facebook page saying, hey, this is, you know, Kia, I'm, I'm, in he- I'm, I'm in trouble, I need help, can you please call somebody to come pick me up, you know, like this call for help, right, because again, still don't want to call the police, so believe it or not, y'all, she responded, <laughs> and she sent my aunt over, like my aunt came over, and my cousin, they came over, they picked me up, and I told them, keep in mind, her sister is in China. Yeah, so that, thank you. She was in China at the time. And so she did respond right away. And it was just so amazing that she had responded so fast, being that she was in another country, time zone totally off. So again, they come pick me up. Now it's exposed. The family knows that I've been in this relationship, domestic violence, that I've been and am addicted to crystal meth. When they came and picked me up, I look at the pic, I didn't even recognize myself. They didn't even recognize me, right? And so I'm saying, okay, I'm done with him. I'm I'm not going to go back. So I purpose to go, I go live with them. And I'm trying to get my life together, right? 
Well, there was a car that was in the equation because he, remember, he kicked me out of my apartment. So he had my car, he got my apartment, he had everything. Now, the car that I had was a car that I had owned, but I was making payments to my mom. So I was trying to get my car back. Long story short, I was trying to get my car back. So I started back talking to him in, in hopes of trying to get my car back and trying to get him to, you know what I'm saying? Well, I ended up sneaking out meeting him in hopes of trying to get this car back. And guess what? Got caught up again. <laughs> but again, I willfully went. So I willfully went with him, believing that, hey, he was going to give me the car back. But again, it didn't end up that way. And so I ended up getting stuck with him and calling my family and saying, hey, I went back and I left again. So I was with him again. This time it was worse. More stuff started happening. He ended up when, when we got married, I put the car in the title. I added his name to the title. On the title in Nevada, it was my name or his name. It didn't say my name and his name. Lesson learned. So if you're in Nevada and you're doing car titles, make sure it says and and not or. So because it said or, that meant either one of us could sell the car. So while I was gone, he ended up going to take out a payday loan on that car at no before that he took my name off the car so he went to dmv had my name taken off the title and it was just in his name now so now i don't even own the car that i had before we got together because he went and took my name off mm. and so again i stayed with him tried to work it out things got worse 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 to the point where we ended up living in a weekly we all that money that i had had we was down to our last $200 and we were in a weekly and we only had enough money to pay that week that we were. And I didn't know what we were going to do after that. He, he was trying to get me to go prostitute. Now in all of what I had been through, I still had a little shred of dignity within myself that okay. I refused to prostitute it was just one of those things that and he used to try to manipulate me right there and say oh well you give it up for free you might as well get paid for it all of those things y'all but I just could not I couldn't bring myself to go that to far that. during that time too we used to go to the casinos we would gamble we would hit big sometimes we would go in there and lose all our money but again it was just something about prostituting that I just wasn't willing to do so I mean, there's so many other things that it's just not relevant. But again, we're down to our last $200. And then something happens where, it, I, don't, I don't even know. Something happens and he starts spazzing out. We're in this one bedroom weekly and he just starts spazzing out. He just start accusing me of having a guy in there. So now he's accusing me of bringing a guy into this place where we're living while he sleeps. So he's saying he's in the room sleep. I'm on the couch. Mind you, even in the weekly, I had to be in there with no clothes on. I could not have clothes on. And so he would accuse, he accused me and because he still has the cameras going too, right? So something on the so camera. Even in the weekly? There even was still in the weekly, he still had cameras on me. So he ended up going back and watching the camera. And it was something on the camera, like a shadow in the fan, but it made it look like Somebody was in there, y'all. It really did look like somebody was in there. So this is another one of those, I'm innocent, but I really can't prove that I'm innocent, right? Because in his mind, we on these drugs, I had somebody in there. 
So he spazzes out, trying to beat me, trying to get me to tell him. I'm like, I didn't have nobody in here. You're crazy. You're tripping. He ends up putting a knife to my throat. And literally, I'm up against the wall. I got this knife to my throat. And he's like, if you don't tell me who you had in here, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And again, I thought, that's it. My life is over. This is done. Well, all of a sudden, within that moment, he just dropped the knife. And he just said, pack your stuff. I'm, I'm taking you home. I'm taking you to your mom's house. Now, keep in mind, over the course of the last few months, he had been saying that he was going to take me, that he was going to drop me off and we were going to be done. That week, he had given me a black eye. So he was saying, okay, well, when your eye heals, then I'll take you. But in that moment, y'all, he, so, he just dropped that knife and he said, pack your stuff, I'm taking you. So I'm not believing him. So I go in, I just grab maybe what I can and put in a backpack. Not even, I don't even know. I just grab some stuff, put it in a backpack. So he's still going back and forth. It takes probably about a good hour to, it felt like it anyway, before we actually left the house. From the time he said, pack your stuff, I'm going to take you, to the time we actually got in the car. It felt like it was like an hour. <laughs> we make it to the car. Now we're driving. We're in the car. We're driving. He's threatening to drive off the road and, and kill us both now. So now he's like, I'm about to just death by, death by suicide. I'm about to kill us both. But again, he's still driving, y'all. The car is just leading him. And we're getting closer and closer to my mom's house, closer and closer. So finally, we make it to my mom's house. We pull up outside. And I grab the door because I'm, like, ready to go. And he's like, wait, I thought we were going to sit here and talk. And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm getting out. So again, it's like he wanted to stop me, but something wouldn't something let him. wouldn't have let him. Right. So I get out. He's like, wait, get your stuff. Cause then I'm y'all, I was ready to just run up the thing. Like I wasn't trying to get nothing. But he's like, wait, here, get your stuff. So I got my bag. So again, now I make it to the and where my mom's house is, there's a gate you have to go through. Then you walk up the walkway. And then they had another like security gate. Well, the security gate door was closed, but the, the house door was open. So I'm banging on the door like banging on the door. Let me in, let me in. My stepdad comes, he opens the door, y'all. Soon as he opened the door, I took off running all the way to the back of the house, ran into my mom's room, closed the door and just started crying. And I, I told my stepdad, I was like, I don't want to see him, tell him to leave. Whatever you have to do, get rid of him. Like I'm not coming out. And I literally did not come out of that room until he left. And when he finally left, y'all, I just cried and I just cried and I just cried because I felt like, oh my God, finally, this is over. Like, because I had told myself, if I get away again, I promised myself that I was never going to go back. And so the, one of the first things I did when I finally was sure that he was gone is I called my pastors that I had been a member of that church I told y'all about in the beginning. And I remember that there was a program that they used to send people to, and it was called Victory Gospel Chapel. And so I called them and I said, I'm ready. Because when I left the first time, I had found out about it and I didn't follow through on going. So this time I called them and I said, I'm ready. So it was on April the 5th. April the 5th was when I made the call. They responded. They said, okay, we're going to send you if you're ready to go. I had to get like all kind of stuff to be able to get on the plane. The, the awesome thing is that in that bag, I had a little pocketbook. I think it was a coach or Michael Kors or something, but it was like a small little coin purse. 
in that coin purse, I had my passport. It was a passport card that me and my sister had got when we went on a cruise. And it, it had my maiden name, but it was still a passport. So I had identification. I had my military ID. It was an old military ID that I even still have to this day. But I had that in there. I believe I had my social security card and I had something called a sonship ring. The sonship ring that I got from that sonship school of the firstborn. All of that was in this little pouch. So because I had that form of ID, I was able to get on the plane using that passport. And so even in that, I thought of all the things that I could have grabbed, I, God saw fit that I had that little pouch that has some form of ID because without it, I would not have been able to go right away. I had, would have had to mail off for it. Now, because I was born in Nevada, I could have went through the steps to get it, but it would have took some time. So I always acknowledge God did that because I would not have been able to. So that was the fifth, the sixth, I took care of my business. On April 7th, I got on a plane and I boarded that plane and it took me to San Antonio, Texas. That was April 7th of 2016. Victor Gospel Chapel Spiritual Growth Center. The pastors was Bishop Donnie Banks and Prophetess Jackie Banks. They had a spiritual growth center where they allowed me to come free of charge. All I had to do was get there. So the pastors in Las Vegas played, paid for me a one-way plane ticket so that I could travel to San Antonio. When I got there, they came and picked me up from the airport. Remember that backpack that I had? I had only two days worth of clothes in that backpack and I only had the pair of shoes that was on my feet that I was wearing. While I was in Vegas, my mom had got me a phone. So I did at least have a cell phone that I was able to communicate with, but that's all that I had. And when I stepped on those, the, the steps really, cause it's a church, they didn't ask me for any money. They didn't ask me, all they said was, they welcomed me, really, and I entered that program. Again, that was April of 2016. I stayed in that program for six months. In that program, they fed me three times a day, so I never had to pay. I had breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I, they provided me with clothing. They provided me with shoes. Everything that I needed to start over again was provided. Everything down to underwear, bras, deodorant, soap, everything I could have possibly needed they provided it for me and they allowed me to stay in their program for six months. And so I stayed in that program for six months. And from there, I went to what's called work release. That's a phase where you phase out of that program. It allows you to get a job. You move into a house with roommates. I got a job and the rest is history. <laughs> Again, we're in 2021. And so I'm just grateful that I had the Spiritual Growth Center um, again, you don't know my story. You know, I, a lot of people, I am a domestic violence survivor. I don't talk about it as often as I should. I did write a book about it. So when I was in the Spiritual Growth Center, I wrote a book called Memoirs of a Soldier from the U.S. Army to the Army of the Lord. That book is available on Amazon. That book talks a little bit more in detail about some of the experiences and some of the things that I went through. But what I found the most out of going through the Spiritual Growth Center was it allowed me to heal. I was able to heal from things that I didn't even know I needed healing from. Things like abandonment. My sister and I, we, I can't speak for her, but I know that we dealt with abandonment because our father left. He, mother and father had been married for 20 years. My dad left. 
remarried in essence, but I always felt like he left me again. I can't speak for her, but I always felt like he left me for someone else. So I had abandonment issues that I didn't even realize. I had love issues. See, the thing about why I fell so fast back into fornication is because as I stated, I was just abstaining from sex. I wasn't delivered from it. I didn't really believe mm. that I didn't need sex because I thought love was sex. I come from a mm -hmm. family of adultery. Again, my father mm -hmm. cheated on my mom. So to me, love was sex. Well, okay, if you love somebody, you have sex with them. And I thought, okay, well, surely if you've taken the time to sleep with me, there's gotta be some kind of love there. That's what I thought mm -hmm. was that you gotta love somebody, but it's not. I had to come to that understanding that sex was not love. And it didn't matter how many times I had sex with the same person or multiple people, it never filled the void, right? And so the Spiritual Growth Center allowed me that time of just rest. It's called restoration, where you can focus on you. You can trace some things. You can replace some things, right? And I was able to do that. And I was able to write that book and, and share those experiences and the things that I went through throughout that program. And so my main message and what I purpose to do is to just encourage people that you have to love yourself. I didn't know what that was. When I got to the spiritual growth center, they said, oh, well, you have to love yourself. And I said, well, I, how do you do that? Because all how do I do that, how do you, yeah. Right, all I knew love to be was sex. So how do you love yourself? Well, it's exactly what it means. I had to put value in myself. I had to believe that I was beautiful. I had to believe that I was worthy. And for me, it was believing in Jesus Christ and having an understanding that when Jesus died on the cross for me, that was the ultimate sacrifice. That was the ultimate love. So now when I think about what love is, I always go back to Jesus and what he did on the cross for me. That was while I was a sinner. That was in spite of not doing everything right. He didn't die only for those who were doing things right, but he died for me when I was on crystal meth. He still died for me. He died for me when I was in that abusive relationship and when I was getting beat all up inside my head, hair pulled out. He had already died for me. He had already loved me and I didn't even know that. I didn't understand that. And so that's where I am today is that I understand that I have value in myself. I understand that there's no reason for a man, woman, or anyone to physically abuse you. That is not love. That is not love. That is not love. No matter what you feel you did to deserve it, there's no reason for any man or woman to put their hands on you. <laughs> Emotional abuse is real. Again, if you, you don't feel worth, if you don't feel value, your value can't come from another person. It can only come from God. It can only come from believing in a savior. It can, but it can't come from people. And that was another thing as I'm wrapping up is that I learned through this experience and coming to San Antonio was that I had to be delivered by, from people. I was so caught up in what people thought of me. Well, I didn't want to make this person mad. I didn't want this person to not be my friend, even in that my ex-husband. I didn't want him to go to jail. I didn't want him all these things because I was so worried about people pleasing that I didn't even know what I wanted. I didn't even know who I was because I was so, and, and it was so liberating when I learned how to say no and no to the things that I just didn't want to do. Like it, it didn't mean that it was bad or it was wrong, but I just learned how to say no. And I got so much power and freedom from just being able to say, no, I don't want to do that or no. Yeah. 
And also too, I can truly say that when you say unapologetic and free, you truly are unapologetic and free. And it's because right. of what I've gone through. Mm -hmm. And so that's all, I mean, everybody has long stories, but that's the gist of what my story is, is just, again, being a domestic violence survivor and knowing and believing in myself, loving myself and being unapologetic and free. Well, I appreciate you coming on and sharing your story with us and being so transparent and unapologetic and free. Um, I believe that our viewers are going to really get some valuable nuggets that you dropped in your story. And I just want to say thank you for all that you have done, are doing, and will continue to do in your life, in the, in the lives of your friends and family. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And I am excited about the rest of the show. Thank you for having me. So, hey, y'all, I could not just leave my story like that. I, I just I had to come back and do another part to this because I just need to make sure that I tell the full story. So, as we know, Lakia is a perfectionist. So what did you leave out? OK, so after I started working, right, so I transitioned to the work release program, I got a job. So after working for a little while, I started going to what's called singles banquets. So at our church, you have these singles banquets. They pair you up with someone. You, you bring a gift. So the guy brings a gift. The girl brings a gift. You go, you sit down, and you just have a conversation. So we talk. We get to know each other. Maybe we, um, you know, ask questions. It's usually like something going on. So they, we eat or they have games, you know, it's, it's different things. And every month it's a different theme. So I ended up getting asked to go to the banquet. Now, normally you don't know who you go to the banquet with, but this particular time my pastor was like, somebody asked for you, but she couldn't remember who asked for me, right? So now I'm all like, somebody asked for me, like who could be asking for me? So now I'm curious, but again, I said, you know what? I'm gonna just wait. I'm gonna just wait till I get to the banquet and I'm gonna just be surprised. So get to the banquet. He was already there. So they walk you to the table and I sat down. I recognized the person. I knew who he was. I knew of him, but I didn't know him personally, right? So we go to this banquet. We have a really good time. We just have a really good conversation. And when I look back on it and I ask myself, well, what was it about the conversation? It wasn't that it was one thing or another. It was just the flow of the conversation, right? And the way I describe it is like a tennis match. So it was like he hit the ball and he would say something, then I would say something, he would say something. It was just a back and forth kind of thing. And I just felt good overall, right? So we go home. The way it is, is that typically you, the next month, there's another banquet. So the guy can ask for you again. Well, that next month, I had already had plans to go out of town. So I wasn't able to go to that next banquet. So then fast forward, he asked for me again. We started going to the banquets. After you start going to the banquets, then you can decide, okay, we want to get to know each other a little bit better. That's called going to the altar. So he, we asked, well, he asked if we could go to the altar. When you go to the altar, you go in front of the church 
they say, okay, so-and-so and so-and-so, they want to get to know each other a little bit better. That just means now that we can talk on the phone. That means people will see us talking. But the thing about the way my church is set up is it's set up with chaperone. So it was like, although we're boyfriend and girlfriend, there and I know adults calling each other boyfriend and girlfriend, I get it. But there's rules to it. So again, you can talk on the phone after a certain time. You get off the phone after a certain time. When you go out on dates, you go with the chaperone. That means somebody goes with you. Again, y'all, I told you my story. Sex was love. And so I appreciated the fact that they have this set up where it really allowed me to get to know who I was talking to. And so we went to the altar for a while and then we decided he proposed. We got engaged. I want to say like around October. And then we got married in January of 2019. So I married my husband, James Peters, who I am now still married to right now. We in January of this year, 2022. Now we just celebrated three years of marriage. And so I know in the bio, we talked about that. I run a business together with my husband. And so, again, I felt like I had to come back and just add that little piece about, first of all, how we got together, that I am now happily married three years again, um, and just grateful that I was able to go through the opportunity of the Spiritual Growth Center, go through getting to know somebody first without having to have any kind of sex involved, being able to wait until marriage like I had desired to do, that I had done before, but that I had desired to do. And again, three years later, he is my best male friend, you know, my sister Shar, best friend, but my best male friend. And what I want to say, even in that and in the story is that I being able to have a husband that's really my friend, that I can say we were friends first. There was nothing extra to it. We had no choice, right, in the situation that we were in, except to just talk on the phone. Again, even when we did get a chance to go on dates, again, there's somebody there. So it's not to say that we didn't trust each other, but at the same time, it just kept it pure, just kept it from us getting away from getting to know each other. And so I attribute the success of my marriage and even three years in to us being able to get to know each other first, being friends. And so what I can say, too, about my story today, despite everything's not perfect, no marriage is, what I can say about my story to encourage someone, though, is that not one day has come where I thought about being with somebody else. Like all of my previous relationships, I was ready to get out quickly. I was done quickly. But in this marriage, I can truly say that I'm in it for the long haul. I can truly say that we are friends, that we love each other. Yes, we have our disagreements, but I'm grateful that we are quick to forgive, that we come together, we forgive, we talk about things. And so again, I'm just grateful to my husband, James Peters. And again, I wanted to make sure that I added that piece on to my story to let people know that I am happily remarried now. Um, and again, I'm grateful for what God did in my life. I'm grateful for the experiences that I went through, but at the same time, I'm happy today to say that I'm happily married and that I'm in love the right way with my husband and not based on my warped sense of thinking. And so again, I just want to thank everyone for allowed to tuning in again. Hopefully something that I said in the previous beginning part or even now will encourage you that all things are possible through God. Again, it doesn't have to be, you know, that's a chapter. It's just a chapter in your life. You can make changes. Things can change. You don't have to stay stuck in whatever situation you're in, but you can trust and believe God to bring you out of that situation and that you can have a happy and successful life.
Got any questions for me, Shar? No, ma'am, I do not. I appreciate so, you coming back and actually closing it out. How do you feel about your son? In, I mean, your brother-in-law. Look at me saying son-in-law. <laughs> he be my son sometimes too. <laughs> I enjoy James very much. He, you know, he makes it easy to love him. You know, I could just call him out of the blue. And sometimes I do call him and he picks up and he's like, hey, sis, how you doing? And so I really appreciate that aspect, uh, his openness and his embracing of me and my husband. Hey, ma'am. Well, I will make sure I pass that message on, but I'm sure he'll watch this and hear the message for himself. And again, y'all be blessed. And I just thank you again for allowing he, me to share my story. You better watch it. <laughs>